The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not represent or reflect the official policy or position of the Ticket Paycheck Foundation and podcast. All information shared is from personal experiences and does not constitute medical advice. We do not take responsibility for any statements expressed during the podcast. Take a pain check does not endorse any products or services. Any said products or services mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you or your condition. Please consult with your physician if you have medical questions, as it may pertain to your condition. Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's episode on Take a Pain Check. I'm so excited to have Navia joining me today. Hi Navia, can you give me a brief introduction about yourself? Tell me a little bit about your education, your hobbies, and what you've been up to recently. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me, Natasha. My name is Navia. I'm 18 years old. I was born in India, but moved to Canada when I was seven. Um, I'm currently a first-year student at McMaster University pursuing health sciences on the track to pursue medicine. So I'm excited to see where that takes me. But whenever I'm not studying, I'm dancing or hiking or traveling. I just love being outdoors, being active. I've been diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. That's kind of what I'm here to talk about. And I'm looking forward to doing it. I'm looking forward to the podcast. Thanks so much for sharing that. So when were you diagnosed with JIA? I was diagnosed about two to three years ago. So it's kind of still recent for me. I was diagnosed when I was 16. You're in your teenage years and that's like such a weird time to get a diagnosis. So how are you feeling at that time? It was really odd. I'm sure you know too, but the process of getting diagnosed with arthritis is extremely long because there's no like indicative factors that tell you for sure that it's arthritis. So it's really long to go through all the symptoms, evaluate them. And it's like a lot of trial and error with different specialists. So I was kind of just seeing doctors almost weekly and they were like, we don't know what's wrong. See this doctor, go to physio, do this, do that. So it was kind of frustrating. I mean, being in school as well, trying to manage all of it and not knowing what was wrong. Um, but eventually after getting the diagnosis, it did help because then it was able to be treated, but definitely yeah, frustrating and extremely long. And so what kind of symptoms did you have that led you to see a physician? So it started with, I was actually at a dance class and it started with extreme pain in my lower back and my left leg. And I thought I just got injured. So I initially went to the doctor just to ask, you know, what I should do. Um, And they prescribed rest. They thought that it was a muscle sprain, a hamstring sprain. So they said rest for two weeks and come back. During that entire period, the pain didn't really go away. And I was just kind of told to be on like standard analgesics like Tylenol um, and just take that as needed. But then when the pains didn't go away, they said, see a physiotherapist, because maybe it's just that physiotherapy was needed. Um, But throughout that whole period, I kind of just had pain in my like lower left back and my left leg. And that would kind of hinder me from like turning in bed, going from standing to sitting, climbing stairs. So it was it was very random and abrupt on this random day that I just had like sharp pain and it was very persistent. Do you have anyone else in your family that has arthritis or was this just really new to you? It was new to me. My mom thought she had arthritis, but she had never been formally diagnosed. So I I wasn't really familiar with the disease and I didn't think that I had it, obviously, um, because I, you know, I didn't know what the factors would be and I didn't know what would indicate that I had it. So, yeah, no one in my family really had it to indicate that I would. So what were some of the challenges that you faced during your diagnosis? period because i know that you mentioned that it was a long diagnosis process for you and there must have been a bunch of hurdles along the way so would you be able to tell me a little bit about that 
I think the worst part of it all was how long it took to get a diagnosis because before getting a diagnosis, they can't really treat it other than give you medications to dull the symptoms. So um, first, my family doctor assumed that it was a hamstring sprain. So I did a lot of physio for two to three months, um, which didn't help at all. Like there was electrotherapy, there was manual physiotherapy and like none of it helped. So then I had a blood test, which indicated that I was um, positive for like a bio indicator that could just indicate a chronic condition, which didn't narrow it down much, but it it did kind of tell them that it wasn't just an injury. So after that, I saw a neurologist, I saw um, a sports medicine doctor, I saw another physiotherapist that specializes with athletes. And then finally, I saw a rheumatologist. Um, and I'd say that was like probably six, seven months into it. And the rheumatologist sent me to get an MRI. So at this point, I had had a couple of blood tests and ultrasounds, but this was like a full body MRI. And through the MRI, they found that there was inflammation in my left SI joint and lower back. And that's kind of what started, like propelled the process for um, the diagnosis of arthritis. So I think just that whole process of like it taking almost up to a year to get the diagnosis of JIA was really frustrating because the entire time I was just on Tylenol and naproxen, which is kind of like a medication, again, to reduce inflammation and pain. Um, and it made me extremely drowsy, too. I don't know if that was just me or that's a common symptom, but it was frustrating because you're taking this medicine twice a day and it's just kind of like numbing the sensation of pain or, you know, like reducing inflammation, but it's not healing anything. So every day you wake up with the same symptoms, like there's like morning like in the morning, you're so stiff. For me, like going down the stairs was tough. And um, at school, I, I I had to take the elevator for a few months because I wasn't allowed to take the stairs. So it was, yeah, it was really random too, from being someone who's like extremely active to going to like having to have the elevator keys at school. It was, it was mentally and physically kind of exhausting. Yeah, it's so awkward, especially like being like, hey, I'm going to take the elevator while you can yeah. go up the stairs. And I remember some people used to be like, oh, like, can we go with you? Like, just so yeah. they and I'm just like, do you understand why I'm taking the elevator? Like, I would rather take the stairs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, so, it's so hard to kind of explain that to people that now, like, now that you have this diagnosis, things have changed. And it's not like you want those accommodations. And I find mm -hmm. that was so hard in like high school to be like, hey, like, these are the accommodations I have, because people will be like, oh, you're so lucky you got to, like, miss the gym class. You don't have to write your test. You can type your test. You're so lucky. Like, I wish my hands were not in pain. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, oh, you get to do this, but it's no, no, I have to. Like, I don't have the choice of doing the alternative, which is what's kind of debilitating about it. For sure. And so you got this diagnosis. You were 16 years old. You were in high school. How did it impact your social life? Yeah, this one's crazy, too, because it was also during a time of COVID. So we were everyone was kind of at home a lot. Right. And there was online school. So at this point, initially, I didn't have to really face it socially because I wasn't going out. So I didn't have to, like, explain to people why I couldn't do certain things or why it would hurt. But then when school did start up again a couple months after, you know, the pain started, it was weird because people would be like, why are you always at the doctors? Like, why do you always have blood tests or why are you taking the elevator? You know, like. They would they would inquire about it and it was tough because you don't know why it's like oh it hurts but it's hard to explain the extent of the pain and like what causes the pain and explaining chronic pain is already a battle in itself for someone who doesn't have it right so it's like socially it was just something i you would avoid which kind of led to decreasing your social interactions like you don't want to even be in a position to have to explain it so i guess that's how that was impacted and even with school it was like 
I I had the option of staying online um, during COVID, but I loved like being at school and being around people. So I was always at school, but sitting for long periods of time was extremely painful. So I would have to like get up in the middle of class and like go on a walk or it, it's all the little things that I feel like other people would start to pick up on and be like, well, what's wrong? And then you just kind of don't have an answer. So social situations became extremely awkward to face and like, I guess kind of isolating too, because not a lot of people um, are vocal about having chronic illnesses because they're oftentimes invisible or undiagnosed. So it was tough. Like it was tough facing it and you felt like marginalized in a way. So would you say that COVID actually helped you in a way or no? Uh, yeah. No, yeah. I, I like reflected on that. I think so. Um, also because it gave me so much time to be at the doctor's. Because I would, I remember I would be attending class online, like in hospital waiting rooms, like waiting for MRIs, driving to the hospital. And I don't think that would have been possible prior, right? Like we didn't have online classes and stuff. So it did really help because it made my schedule extremely flexible. But, um, you know, in the grand scheme, COVID wasn't great. But in this one case, I think it definitely did help. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that way too. I'm like... There are so many benefits for COVID happening, but then again, we were immunocompromised. We needed to take so many more precautions. Also, it's not good in general, like deaths and like sicknesses, but like thinking about the different things that we've evolved to now, like for example, hybrid models, that is so beneficial to someone living with a chronic illness because they can do what they need to do when they need to do it. And if they don't feel well one day, they can attend the lecture online. Like those are things that should have been implemented before, but it it wouldn't yeah. have happened if it didn't hit. Yeah, exactly. It took COVID for us to realize that like, oh, wow, this is actually really helpful for us. And like even the half day concept, I remember we used to have like quad masters and we would only have half day in person, which was good too, because you wouldn't be sitting for like six hours a day. So all of these little things, you kind of realize like, oh, this works for me. And then you can kind of change your lifestyle to fit it more. Which, yeah, so COVID, COVID helped, but it's weird that that had to propel it. And it kind of scares me because everyone before me who kind of had like chronic pain like I do, like they didn't have that option. So that's like, I can't even imagine having to sit for six hours. And it's interesting to think about people like, for example, me, like I was diagnosed before COVID, like when I was 13 and then going through COVID with that. But then, well, COVID's not over, but less COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, like now seeing how time has progressed with COVID, um, Mm -hmm. just looking at how more open I'd say society is, like society's become more open minded to, you know, bringing technology into classrooms. And like you mentioned, some of those half days that you need or the hybrid model or recording lecture videos. um, I just feel like it's changed. But then there's also those random cases where professors or teachers are like, they don't they still don't accept accommodations or they're not okay with it so wondering leading on to that what accommodations did you receive in high school and university with your condition if any so the elevator key was kind of like my only one because yeah i i think also i was more afraid to ask for accommodations because i since the diagnosis or like the whole condition was so new i didn't think i needed it you know because you're like there's nothing wrong like it's just some pain like i And even the elevator key, like, I was so resistant to that until the doctor was like, you're not going to go to school until you take the elevator. Like, I, he was like, you're not taking the stairs. Um, Because it would make it worse. But I didn't want to be like the kid who took the elevator. You know, like, there was like that stigma around it in my head. But now looking back, it's like, you should ask for the accommodations that you need. Because not only does it make life easier for you, but 
you're the only one thinking about it as deep as you know you think like everyone else isn't really paying that much attention to what accommodations you need because everyone has their own things going on so it's like it was just hard to accept that I needed them so in high school like the only thing I had was the elevator key and now I don't really have any in university only because I kind of schedule my own lifestyle around the illness so for example if I had like a six-hour class continuously like I would need accommodations or like a schedule that didn't have breaks but I schedule my classes with like breaks in between or like I'll go on a walk I have one three-hour class which is like so tough um but the rest of them like I kind of plan my life around it although I do think that I should look into like the accommodations as well I just haven't had a chance again but I would recommend honestly anyone who has chronic pain to look into because every I know every university offers it um but I think it's still fairly new for me what about you did you like any recommendations, anything that you like found helpful? I've heard a lot of people or I've talked to a lot of people who have the same kind of mindset as you thinking that I think I'm okay and I don't need it. Yeah. And some people don't even know that it's available to them and there's That's just true, not yeah. enough awareness about it or like the types of accommodations you can get. I've had accommodations ever since I was diagnosed and I've seen the progress from grade eight to high school to now and the difference in how I articulate what I need. For me, my arthritis, like it impacts my fingers and my wrists. So yeah. for me, like all the assignments and chemistry and biology and everything is like using your hands. Yeah. And so that's something that where I need accommodations. Yes, my feet are impacted, but I don't really need anything because yeah. I wear shoes that are comfortable. I don't have much pain in my feet, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> but like a lot of the pain is from my wrists and fingers so maybe that's why i require more accommodations extra time on tests assignments a scribe so i initially started with my left si joint which is like the sacroiliac right at the base of the spine kind of on my left side so that's where the inflammation was first and it's still there like it's never gone away from there but it also spread to my right side um and it's partially in like other parts other joints in my body like my index finger on my right hand um, which you're right, like the hand ones suck because you use your hands for everything. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's like, I can't even imagine, but mainly for me, it's in my sacroiliac joints. And then like other joints will flare, but they don't stay. But yeah. even right now, like sitting, like it's, it's always there, you know, and I'm, I'm medicated, but it's, there's like an extent to which that helps. And then it's still kind of latently present. Yeah, so like some of the accommodations that even I get and I don't really have any like back pain or like spine pain are like an ergonomic chair when I write tests or it's so annoying because for labs, I've asked my lab coordinator, actually emailed accommodation being like, hey, I have these three hour labs, which is something that you were talking yeah. about, like three hour classes yeah. and I cannot sit on that lab stool for three hours and they're like, yeah, we'll look into an ergonomic uh, lab stool where is the lab stool not here and the semester is already over and my lab coordinator was so nice he's like like you should definitely advocate about it but i'm like i'm so tired the semester's over i've dealt with yeah. no good chair like is it worth it but he mentioned something really good is like the fact that you're bringing the chair into the classroom means that you're helping so many other kids that might have needed that chair and didn't have access to that chair and i was like wow but also I've tried to talk about how I need the chair and I haven't gotten the chair. So at this point, I'm like, I'm not going to fight it, even though I should. I just don't have the energy to do it. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's hard to be the only person. Like I said, like chronic illness is like, it's not common for people to talk about it. And I, I don't want to say it's not common because I know that a lot of people have chronic illnesses, but 
it's never, you know, before I was diagnosed, I didn't hear anyone ever come up to me and like tell me that they had a chronic illness. So it's hard. It's hard to advocate for it, especially when you're the only one. It's the first like time that this is even being asked for. But the chair would like superiorly help. Like it would, especially I remember when I was diagnosed, they're like, get like a yoga ball type chair, like a chair that moves. Mm -hmm. Because for me, anything, any stillness is like extremely painful. I'm going to actually look into that. Here's the downside of it. So they told me, checkmark all the accommodations you want. So basically, they told me to checkmark all the all the boxes because worst case, if I don't use the accommodation, it's fine. Like, at least you have it there in case you need it. So that's like one of the bigger steps to take is like get these accommodations. And like, if you don't use it, you don't use it. And that's fine. But if you really need it, then you can use it. So they mentioned how I'm going to have an ergonomic chair in all my classes. And I was like, uh, that's embarrassing. Like, I don't want to just like sit there especially in like lecture halls basically i was like okay how am i gonna make friends i literally told my learning specialist this i was like how am i gonna make friends this is my first time coming to ottawa now and i always spent the whole year online if i'm gonna be sitting in this ergonomic chair that's in the bottom of the classroom or the side of the classroom that's awkward for me <laughs> like i'm not i don't want to do that i was like i'll test it out but i'm it's not like a guarantee that i'm gonna use it and so I spent the first week of classes sitting in the normal chairs like everyone else was sitting. And I found it perfectly fine. Like I didn't okay, feel good. Like, painful. So I was like, okay, that's fine. What's funny is you see everyone else using their ergonomic chairs, like taking oh. invitations. So it's yeah. like not that big of a deal. Yeah. But I feel like at first I was like, oh, like, I'm going to feel so isolated, but really no one cares and no one knows why there are big desks and nicer chairs in the front. Like everyone wants those nice chairs, which can also be an issue. Yeah. If I needed it, why are you sitting there? I ended up not using it though, because I found that some of the chairs in the classrooms were more comfortable and I didn't need it, but I know some people might need it. We don't have anything like that. Like we don't have any ergonomic chairs at all in the lecture halls, but I definitely think we should bring them in. Like, cause lecture hall chairs like are typically so uncomfortable for anyone who has like spine pain because they're just hard and you can't move and it like stiffens up and anything in arthritis that stiffens up, it's like just leads to pain. So I agree with that. And then other accommodations, I have a lab note taker because I can't handwrite and I can't really pipette that much because my hands hurt. So she literally is someone who sits beside me in class. And for me, I'm like, I don't care. Like as long as my lab partner knows, yeah, yeah. my lab partner was so nice. She's like, I'll be your like other hand and like, I'll help you out. And she's kind of, my lab note taker has kind of become like in my little lab group. So it's like less And so it's really nice to have that. But also at this point, I feel like I'm like, I don't care what people think because I just need to get through school and do what I want to do and need to do. But it's so hard to come to that mindset. Yeah, yeah. I think also because it's been like longer that you've had to face the situation where it's like, okay, you know what? At this point, like, I know what matters. I think I'm still in the phase where it's like, oh, this is something open to me. Like I can have an accommodation. Like I might need an accommodation that's yeah. still hard to grasp, you know? Yeah. But It's yeah. interesting that you brought that up because you're right. I think the only reason why I am more, I guess, assertive and talk more about what I need and am able to say it is because of my like high school accommodation experience and how it was not that great. Oh. And so now I've learned from that and I'm like, okay, I generally don't care what other people think. I, what I need is what I need. Exactly. And it's hard to be like, yeah, like this is what I need. Um, one of my friends who also has a disability 
struggles to actually talk about what accommodations they need like they always come to me like hey like what should i say what do i do but it's just so important to know that like there are people like us out there who are so interested in like helping you be able to you know write an email to accommodation services if you're struggling to right providing people with resources is so important so once you were diagnosed you mentioned some of the medications like naproxen and tylenol which is kind of something that is so generic but were there any other medications that you were put on throughout your diagnosis journey i was so i wasn't no i didn't take any like um oral medications other than those two and even now like naproxen is on an as-needed basis like i never kind of got off of it um but i used to take it twice a day now it's just like take it whenever you need it but afterwards, I did have a cortisone injection into my SI joints, like directly. So it was kind of like a, a minor surgery. And that helped for six months, like that kind of, which is like a long time, um, which is kind of sad that that kind of like is a long time in my head. But um, for six months, like the pain wasn't gone, but I could like sit and stand and take the stairs, which it sounds like a blessing in the way that I'm phrasing it. And I know it's normal for a lot of people. But after going through a period of time where you can't, it was like, okay, I feel good. Like I'll take a little bit of pain if I can take the stairs. So the cortisone injection really helped. And I know that that's like the next step in the standard of care. Um, but then after the six months, the pain kind of came back. The stiffness was back. So again, full body MRIs. That's the other thing. I went to sick kids. That's my hospital. Um, or it was when I was a kid. And genuinely the best possible experience that I could have imagined once I got diagnosed before diagnosis was like totally a mess with all the doctors uh, not necessarily at sick kids just everywhere but after I got diagnosed I met with my rheumatologist at sick kids and like incredible experience everything is very well streamlined and like the tests you need are done and they have the full body MRI machine which is great for anyone with like JIA because the inflammation isn't localized to one joint necessarily like it can flare literally anywhere and you with chronic illnesses, you never know. So when the pain came back, they did another full body MRI and they, they saw the inflammation in my right SI joint as well. So they realized that like the localized injections would not work anymore um, because they, you know, I can't inject every joint and they thought it would just be left, but it wasn't. So then I was um, tested for a biologic medication called Adalimumab or Amjavita, which is what I'm currently on. And for that, there were a bunch of tests because it is like, um, it, makes you immunocompromised so they like have a bunch of blood tests they check you for tuberculosis and so that was like maybe a month or two month process but biologics essentially it's kind of like it's a tnf inhibitor which means it inhibits the inflammation and decreases the pain but also it makes you immunocompromised because tnf is like an immune cell or, or like a part of the immune system so i take that once every two weeks and it's a self-administered injection so it's yeah, it sounds like it's it was a lot crazier when I first got it. It's actually been almost exactly a year since I started taking it um, just a little over a year. But essentially, it comes like they'll send two to my house per month and then it's, it just has to be frozen. Um, and then you take it out and you administer it like there were lessons that I had to take before um, with a nurse and they kind of show you how to administer the injection to yourself. There's four injection sites on your thighs and on your stomach because um, it needs to go into kind of like more fatty stored areas because the needle's pretty large. Um, but yeah, so initially it was scary. And for me, I can imagine it wasn't that bad because I was older. But I know a lot of young, young kids are on it, like eight, nine-year-olds. And I can't even imagine because the needle is huge. Like at eight or nine would have been crazy. But it really, it really does help. Um, 
I have been like missed a dose and like the pain is really bad. So, you know, I don't know how much that has to say with my disease progression, but it does help with the pain and the inflammation. And I'm so glad it's a newer treatment. Um, it's been about 30 years since biologics have even been like easily prescribed um, and not in all countries. Like we're pretty blessed to have that here. So I'm really grateful for it. And I'm, you know, I'm happy that that's an option now because without it, like I would just be taking naproxen every day, which is horrible for my gut. <laughs> I remember when I started treatment originally it was also naproxen but then after a month or so it was like prednisone methotrexate like I tried everything you have to take those oh yeah I had to take prednisone methotrexate Humira Actemra um what else did I take I took like another biologic and then I got 10 joint injections at sick kids I remember my doctor also said it's gonna be like a temporary band-aid like six months to a year to like figure out a medication and at that point I like maxed out most of the kid medications so she was like okay like what do you want to do next and then yeah. my mom suggested something like triple therapy which is what I'm on right now and I've been on it for two to I'm, I thought it was 16 four like three to four years I'm like 20 yeah. now. that's crazy <laughs> uh, three it to four years feel now. that long yeah, I'm like, now that I'm counting the years, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of years. Yeah. But yeah, like three to four years. I'm on methotrexate, sulfasalazine, and Plaquenil right now. And it's been like working pretty good. So I am also very blessed to be on medication, but it's been a journey. And so I'm yeah. glad that it was easy but, for you to find yeah. something that worked for you kind of off the bat after the naproxen. Because for me, I had yeah. to be on like seven medications, which took me like three years to figure out what was going to work. As part of Take a Pain Check, actually, I could go to that um, a AHPA session and they were talking about like biologic medications. They're like, oftentimes it doesn't work instantly. Like in most cases, the first medication you prescribe is not the one that works. Um, so it's like, yeah, very grateful that it did work. But yeah, I can't even imagine because then you're like, it feels really hopeless because there's not that many medications to try. And when things don't work, you're like, am I running out of options? Like, is anything going to work? I know but, it's so stressful and I feel like we don't need that stress in our life like please yeah on top of everything else yeah <laughs> I mean you briefly mentioned that you did dance and this is kind of how it all started I mean I wouldn't want to blame dance on your arthritis but that's kind of where your journey started when you were at, at dance so how did you kind of go about attending dance classes like once you were diagnosed so initially I was banned from like exercise um <laughs> seriously like doctors were like they like told my parents to keep tabs because I was like I would sneak it in like I loved dancing and like hiking and I loved like I like lifting but obviously at the time like I was not supposed to be doing any of that so I remember for months like I wasn't allowed to go to dance and I was actually training for graduation um from dance so like it would have been in a year from when the pain started but because of it like I was I was not able to graduate because I literally could not, you can't put in as many hours of work that are needed. Um, so that kind of sucks. Like I was never actually able to graduate and perform because it would have been a three hour performance continuously. And that's, yeah, that's like stressful on the body, which sucked. But so for the first few months, I, other than like me trying to sneak in little <laughs> exercises here and there, I really like wasn't allowed to work out but I would go on a lot of walks um because walking was great like walking was always like if you can walk go on a walk so I'd go on like hour-long walks because it was like you need to get some movement to clear your head um or at least for me it was always my outlet so I I counted walks as I guess my movement and then 
that was before I got diagnosed though, because they thought it was an injury. So they're like, if she's going to work out, it's going to get worse. But once I was diagnosed, they actually said they're like, exercise is actually therapeutically beneficial for children with JIA. So I was like, you don't have to tell me twice. I went back to dance. I went back to lifting. But with that, there was always the precaution that like when things hurt, you have to be intuitive with that because like there's no there's no right way to exercise. Um, So they're like, if lifting this amount of weight hurts, lower it. If this exercise hurts, don't do it. So it's been trial and error. Like if I'm like progressively overloading, I'll try to decrease the increments by which I do it to really assess like what hurts where um, what I shouldn't be doing. So for example, I don't deadlift because I have like spinal pain and that just would make it so much worse. So there's like, it's been trial and error, but for the first few months, it was totally off the table. Now it's back on, but you know, when it flares, like you have to take a break. It's really take it as you go. Like you can't really plan ahead. Um, But I'm just glad to be able to move again and like lift and dance because it's a great outlet and it helps. Um, Same with aerobic exercise, like swimming and stuff. That's really great for arthritis. Um, cause it doesn't carry any load, right? Like you're kind of floating. Um, so any aerobic things, um, I try to also incorporate in to stay active, but yeah, it was really bad in the beginning that I wasn't able to, but now I can. And I really want to say that too, cause a lot, it's a huge misconception that if you have arthritis, like you shouldn't exercise and I don't know where it came from or like you shouldn't move. Like if you have any like physical pain, you shouldn't move. Obviously like intuitively, that's what you would think. Um, like my mom for the longest time, she's like, if it hurts, you're not supposed to go work out. And I'm like, no movement helps like staying still hurts. So that's, I don't know. It's a huge misconception that at least I encountered. So for anyone else that's like going through it, like if movement helps you, I think, I think you should do it. Yeah. How did your arthritis impact your mental health? If it did? Like for sure did <laughs> initially, especially like pre-diagnosis, the uncertainty was really hard for me because I have like an extreme perfectionism mindset. And so it was, it wasn't that like it was imperfect, but it was out of control. Like I didn't know what was wrong. So I kind of just felt like helpless because I was like, I don't know how to fix it. And I can't walk today or I can't turn in bed today. Like I can't go to school. So it's like, it was very isolating. And like, I didn't want to talk to anyone about it because they wouldn't understand. So, or at least I didn't have access to people that would understand because at the time I didn't have a diagnosis. Like I couldn't like, go to organizations like take a pain check or like join support groups because I didn't know that I had arthritis. Um, So initially, I just felt like extremely helpless and I didn't want to talk about it. So it was isolating. And that obviously led to like a lot of, you know, sad days, (laughs) a lot of dark days. But then after with the diagnosis, like it was a lot better because things started improving. But even now when I have flare ups, like it's kind of it's kind of like a punch in the gut right because it's like everything's good and then suddenly there'll be a flare-up and it's like oh I do have a problem it does hurt and I can't really do much about it so it's hard but you have to like remind yourself that like you know what like I I I don't know if this is the healthiest way but I remind myself that it was so much worse at one point and so I'm kind of like grateful for how how much medication and support I have access to now um but I also remind myself that it will pass because like every flare I've had in the past has passed so I'm like okay if it's bad right now it will pass like focus on other things do what makes you happy and I guess like talk to the people that support you or that uplift you um I know it's so hard to go to people and tell them about chronic pain because they you know they don't understand even like your parents sometimes like they don't know how it feels even though they really want to like empathize with you and be there um but if you can let people be there for you and I think that really helps like or let people know what you're going through because 
then there's room for like discussion about it. And you don't always have to like take that burden on yourself, which makes it a lot easier to carry. Yeah, it's so interesting that you bring that up, especially because like when I was initially diagnosed, I also found myself being in like a more darker place. I mean, I wouldn't say that I was like depressed or anything, but I definitely was sadder. Like I remember I used to like cry a lot or like just like kind of so I'm like why me like that was like the biggest question it was like why me like why do I have to have this you're right I don't know if this is a great mindset either I kind of thought about the same thing that you thought about which is kind of like I've my life has definitely become better now and I've grown as a person and I think we've learned how to adapt and I think that's like the biggest thing it's like the more you're into your diagnosis you learn how to adapt and how to live with it and so that way it just makes things much better because you found medication that worked for you or you found ways that you could get the support that you need now. And so like it takes time, but like it does get better. Exactly. Yeah. And I think also like initially I was before JIA, they thought it was like ankylizing spondylitis. And like, you know, I didn't know much about what any of that was. And when you search it up, you get the worst possible results. It's like, you're, yeah, your bones are going to fuse and you can't move. And I was like, if that happens to me, I was like, that's the worst possible thing I could imagine. And like, the, you rightfully said, it's like, why me? Because you're also, you were 13. Like, that's an inc- incredibly difficult position to be in as a kid and be like, why do I have arthritis? Um, or like, why can I, why does it hurt to like write or to sit? Like, that's, other people wouldn't think that such minimal daily tasks are like painful experiences so it's really hard to go from like a very normal like fun easygoing life to like not being able to sit for a long period of time like it's it seems so minor but it impacts you in a really major way because you do these things all the time so it's like yeah it's it's definitely like a lot of dark days and like you kind of come to terms with it and start you know adapting but yeah it's it's really tough in the beginning so having people and like good doctors really helps can you talk a little bit about your experience transitioning from pediatric to adult care and rheumatology if you've transitioned already yeah so i did um transition already i remember when i was diagnosed at 16 maybe a couple months in, they already started talking to me about the process of transitioning from pediatric to adult care which i really appreciated because it gave you time to come to terms with it um, again, being at Sick Kids, like it is such a community building hospital, I feel like, that you feel going there like you're at home. So it like it's like a safe little bubble, or at least that's how I felt at Sick Kids with my doctors. So them introducing adult care early on was really easy for me to like grasp because I had time to come to terms with it. And the process essentially was like they introduced what adult care would be like. They talked to me. I was applying to universities too, like in grade eleven. So they were like, where are you going to be, you know, for adult care? Like, where would you like your home base to be? And I was applying to schools in the U.S. and Canada. So I was like, I I have no idea where I'm going to be. And I like I, I they just waited until I like accepted an offer, which I also appreciated. Like, they're so accommodating with all of that. And then so I accepted um, McMaster. So I was in Hamilton. I was like, OK, then anything in the GTA, like recommend, you know, who whoever you think is best. And so I I'm currently at Toronto Western um which the hospital is great as well but what they did was I had an adult appointment prior to turning 18 so that I saw that rheumatologist I did an assessment and then I also went back to sick kids after that and my doctors were like how do you feel with this doctor like is there any concerns that you have do you feel comfortable so I think just the fact that they like checked in on you afterwards and made sure that that transition was good 
was the most important part because it's so easy in adult care to fall off of care because it's in your hands. Whereas with pediatric, they're following up. They're like, when's your next appointment? Make sure you come in, make sure you do this. We're going to test you with an MRI, like every appointment. Whereas with adult care, it's like book an appointment or don't like they're not following up with you. So making sure that the adult rheumatologist that you see or like whatever specialist you see is one you like, you're comfortable with. The hospital is at a convenient location. Like they really took care of all those factors, which made it easy for me to transition to that care. And I'm still in touch with my um, pediatric rheumatologist today. And I just like talk to her. She's like, how are you holding up? Like, or she's like inviting me to events at sick kids and stuff. So for me personally, I had a great experience. Um, I know it's not like that for everyone. So I work with sick kids a lot on transition from pediatric to adult care because like, again, like I think it would be the worst thing possible to have incredible pediatric care and fall off of it as an adult because arthritis is like, it could be a progressive disease. So, you know, you you never want to be in a position where it gets worse because you didn't, you know, take care of it or you didn't get the right medication or you weren't able to see somebody or get the right test to recognize things. So yeah, I had a great procedure and I I hope everyone has the same yeah and oftentimes that's not the case for a lot of people they don't have that so kids is just amazing and the team is so amazing and I feel like they hand you off to the right person whereas a lot of the times like people don't have access to one of those big hospitals and the big hospitals so it's hard for people to be able to even want to transition or understand what's going on because they're not getting what they need and something that you brought up was the fact that like a lot of patients from pediatrics don't end up going to their adult appointments and it's interesting because i talked to two rheumatologists that run the transition clinic at women's college and they mentioned how that is one of the challenges oftentimes you have a lot of patient cases where they're like way older now and they didn't even have care for like 20 years of their lives yeah and and then it gets worse and it's irreversible so like yeah and it's hard because you know they move to places and they just drop off because they're like this is going to be so much work like transferring everything there and so for me my pediatric rheumatologist it was affiliated with sick kids so originally i was at sick kids but then i moved to one that was like closer to me in my house and so it was just so much easier to like go to her and things like that and for me i had the decision whether or not i wanted to transition so it's a little okay. bit different whereas at sick kids it's like hey you're 18 leave now and like <laughs> you yeah. need to onto the, the whole graduation certificate and everything Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually really cute. It's cute. Yeah. I want one. <laughs> Put a positive spin on it. I'm like, I, I want a graduation certificate. Yeah. I was a patient at sickest from like 13 to 15 or 13 to 14, and then I was it's, like, this is this is too far from my house. It, it was, yeah. Where Where are you based? In Ottawa? Markham. Oh, okay. Yeah, it would be. I was in Mississauga, so for me, it was okay yeah so it was just like unnecessarily far and i was like okay you know what if there are doctors that are kind of like affiliated to sick kids but like closer to my area like i'd love to go to them and so i did that and i went to my rheumatologist and i transitioned when i was i transitioned in october and i was 19. so like as i said it's it was kind of up to me i could have stayed in my pediatric rheumatologist but i was like okay like i want to experience that transition and see what was going to happen also i was experiencing a flare so i was like okay maybe a second perspective might be good and also my pediatric rheumatologist always mentioned the adult rheumatologist uh, Mm -hmm. that she knew of and a lot of people recommended her so now i just go to one back in my hometown and so it's like so much easier but i didn't have the access to 
that transition clinic that everyone gets asked to. There is one in Ottawa, but I was like, I'd rather go somewhere where I'm home. It's also hard because you have to pick the location, right? You're like, okay, do we want it to be in, for example, Mississauga, or do we want it to be like in Hamilton or like Toronto or Ottawa? There's just so many places, like what is convenient for you? The transition was pretty smooth, but a lot of people that don't have that transition clinic or like that support from peds to adult, like I never, I actually met my adult rheumatologist before, but that's not because my pediatric rheumatologist was like, now you're gonna transition, so you're gonna meet them. I got joint injections, like two joint injections from my adult rheumatologist. Okay, okay, I didn't know okay. she was going to be my adult rheumatologist, but I was like, okay, like she was pretty good. So I don't mind like transitioning oh, to her. Test it out. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just like a rare situation. And I know that a lot of people don't really get that. Um, so it is transition is such a big topic and a challenge. And I hope that we can like make that change to make it better. You were involved with sick kids in providing a patient perspective on the standards of care for a variety of different projects. Can you tell me a little bit about your patient perspective work that you do or patient partner work that you do at sick kids? Yeah, so essentially I work with them on the transition policies. So um, recently I spoke at the Spark conference, which is the Spondyloarthritis Research Consortium of Canada. And basically I gave them the patient perspective on like how it was like having care at sick kids versus Toronto Western, um, and also just the whole transition process, the paperwork, the policies that are in place, um, the resources that we have access to, the difficulties faced, the strengths, because I feel like oftentimes when there's affiliations and infrastructure, they don't look at the people that they're helping, they don't look through their eyes, because obviously it's hard to. So having the patient perspective, I think in literally any field of medicine for anything, is so helpful, because when you're trying to help someone, you can you can do the best objectively, but there's so many little subjective interpretations that can only be given to you by the person going through it. So for example, um, when they transition, they they have that one check-in where it's like they go, you go to the adult rheumatologist, then you come back and check in. I'm like, no matter what happens, don't take that away. I feel like that's so integral to the transition process. Whereas in a lot of hospitals, you're kind of like, okay, well now you're 18, like time to see your adult rheumatologist, like bye. That's tough, I feel like. And so also, like, I had a very open line of communication. Like, I could email my pediatric rheumatologist, and that didn't go away after I transitioned. So even now, if there's anything that, like, I'm concerned about or uncomfortable with, like, I can email her and go back. So random things like that. Like, I gave a speech at that conference, and currently I'm working with them. They're trying to implement a new transition policy, which is still in the works um, for the future. So I kind of attend the meetings, and the way, the things that they discuss, the infrastructure they're building, the contracts, I just have a look, and I'm like, this looks good to me. This would be perceived this way. Um, parents are concerned about this or as a patient, I would be concerned about this or I think we should add this. So just making sure that transition is as seamless and as comfortable as possible to ensure that as many people um, as are at sick kids transition to successful adult care, because that will prevent, honestly, like it's like a ripple effect, you know, like if you don't have a successful adult care experience, like you said, like things will progress. And then 20 years later, you kind of realize that it has progressed. So I think starting at the base, which is that transition, like prepares that whole adult life of dealing with chronic illness to be so much easier, because you don't have to, it's one less thing to worry about to have a good transition and a solid adult rheumatologist. So I yeah, I work with sick kids a lot. And I and I really like it. If you think of your lifespan, mainly most of your life is in that adult part of exactly. it right yeah. like your first 18 to 20 years is that pediatric but really 
the rest 60 to 80 years is like the rest of your life. So if you don't have that care from the beginning, it's going to be really hard. You were also a part of Take a Pain Check as an ambassador. Why did you choose to get involved and how did you find out about Take a Pain Check? So interestingly enough, actually at the conference that I was speaking at for sick kids, um, there was a physiotherapist in attendance and she worked at sick kids and she but she knew about take a pain check i think she was familiar with you actually she was like you and natasha would get along like you should reach out to her so that's what i did i literally reached out to you and i found out about the podcast and she was like the physiotherapist was like you absolutely have to go on the podcast but also you know if you're interested like look into roles if they have any openings at the organization so i definitely like totally stalked the instagram and i reached out to you and i was like hey like is there any way i can get involved because i loved what you guys were doing by building a community for an illness that's so invisible because it's like the most foundational experience is to have someone you can talk to about it who would actually understand so I was like how can I get involved how can I help um and then there was like the whole application process to be an ambassador and so that's currently my role at take a pain check and I get to be on the podcast now which is amazing as well um but yeah so that's kind of how I found out and got involved but it's been an incredible experience so far um being able to advocate for things that I that it, that I find hard to do solo you know like it wouldn't be possible for me to individually have as much of an impact as I would as part of an organization with individuals going through the same things as myself, advocating for the same things. Um, and even just like building a community where you can just share experiences is so powerful for an illness like ours. So it's been a great experience to be able to take a pain check. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love to just end off the podcast episode with an advice segment. So what advice do you have for youth who are about to transition into adult care? Okay, um, a couple of things. Number one, don't be afraid to ask questions. That's something that I feel like a lot of kids are afraid of because a lot of times like you have your parents asking the questions or, you know, you kind of just go with what people say. But for me, knowledge has always been power. Um, any medication I've been prescribed, any diagnosis I've been given, I've always asked, like, how does this impact me? Like, what is the biological basis of this? Or why is this medication the one I'm being prescribed over another one? And just being able to understand that puts you so much more at ease because I promise you, your doctors have a reason for why they're doing what they're doing. And once you know that too, it's so much easy to tr easier to trust them and to trust the process and be like, you know what, it's helping me because of this. And, you know, kind of taking charge of your own care. So ask questions uh, whenever, whenever you feel necessary. Another thing is take control and be vocal of your concerns. So again, in adult care, it's not as like handheld, like people won't spoon feed you um, what you need. They won't book your appointments for you. They won't tell you you need an MRI. But if I, for now, like, for example, now, whenever I have flare ups, like I'll call my doctor or I'll be like, when can I come in next? When can I see you? Because if you don't take control, like there's so many patients that they're dealing with that they can't necessarily check in with everyone. So transitioning to adult care, just make sure that you're checking in with yourself and taking control whenever you need it, because the resources are there for you as long as you reach out for them. Um, and like Natasha said, too, same with accommodations. Like if you need them, look for them because they're there as long as you just like advocate and say like, hey, I need this. People are always there to help you. Um Another thing I think is keep track of your symptoms. This is more of just a tangible thing, but I found it to be so helpful that like, just write it down. Like if you have a day of a flare, like write down the day and be like flare, because then whatever medication you're on, like the doctor can evaluate that. That's something I didn't do because I've been having flares recently and I, I wasn't tracking the dates. And the doctor was like, well, I can't tell if it's related to the medication or not unless you track, you know, when it's happening and when the medication is administered. So just keep a track of everything. 
and stay in touch with your doctors and you know like talk to people that you love don't isolate yourself um know that you're not alone is one of the biggest things like there's so many people going through what you're going through and if you start being vocal about it like more people will probably come to you and tell you that they're going through something similar or at least be empathetic um so don't be scared to talk about it but yeah just know that you're very much not alone and that there's help for you wherever you need it as long as you ask Thank you so much, Navia, for joining me on today's podcast. We started off talking about your diagnosis journey and the different medical professionals that you consulted before reaching a rheumatologist. You talked about the emotional and mental aspect of being diagnosed with a rheumatic disease and how it changed your active lifestyle. We dived into talking about school accommodations. And then we talked a little bit about the transition and the differences you experienced when you were transitioning to adult care. Last but not least, we talked about your involvement with Sick Kids and Take a Pain Check and supporting the rheumatic disease community. So everyone, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, check out Navia's social media channels, which I will link down below. And I'll see everyone in two weeks on Take a Pain Check. Thank you so much, Navia. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for having me. It was incredible. Keeping me there